Third Man Walking. I just returned from a week playing poker in Dallas, and it was fine. Texas poker gets all the hype right now, and while I can understand why people like it so much, I didn't have the wow Texas poker experience that many folks have when they go there. Today I'm going to talk about why, which will lead to discussions of PLO double board bomb pots, the difficulty of facing opponents you don't know, and craziness in live streamed games. First, the good stuff. The main points in Dallas's favor are that it's a big market, the rake is relatively low, and the games are essentially uncapped. Technically, many of the games I played there were capped, but with a match the stack rule, allowing you to buy up to the biggest stack. But several times I saw people buy in for more than that, and no one objected. Also, probably because legal poker is relatively new to Texas, the games are mostly quite soft. Still, most of the games I was able to play in in Dallas were smaller than the ones I play in LA. The biggest game that ran on four of the six days I was there was 2-5. These were really big 2-5 games due to the match the stack rule, but they were still smaller than LA 510. Also, the quality of the games varied wildly, and many of the games during the day when I prefer to play were relatively tight. There were usually multiple 2-5s going, and if I'd stayed longer I would have gotten better at changing tables. But since I didn't know the player pool, I sometimes wound up in games that were a little bit frustrating. Many tables also played with double board PLO bomb pots every dealer change, which is a unique wrinkle to Texas poker. So double board PLO bomb pots, let's unpack that. Double board, meaning two separate flops, turns, and rivers. PLO, meaning everyone gets a four card PLO hand rather than a two card no limit hand and bomb pots, which means everyone's hand is live heading to the flop, or flops. As I've discussed before on Third Man Walking, PLO is a more chaotic, variance-heavy form of poker. Bomb pots are also chaotic, so adding them together makes things incredibly chaotic, and having two boards adds another layer of chaos that makes things even trickier. If I'd stayed in Dallas longer, I might have been able to use all that chaos to my advantage because... The pool seems to play very badly in these double board PLO bomb pots, but I quickly found that I didn't really know how to play them, and only being there a week, there wasn't really time for me to learn. I started to realize all this in a wild pot in which I made a very stupid mistake. I'll try to go slowly as I describe this pot, which illustrates how complex these double board PLO bomb pots can be. I'll also put the hand history in the show notes. So. I'm about $5,000 effective with the main villain in this hand, who plays aggressively and thoughtfully, but puts way too much money into pots with weak hands and frequently bets when he should check. This is a $15 bomb pot, and there are 8 players at the table, so there's $120 in the pot heading to the flop. I have 7, 5, 4, 3 with the 4 and 3 of spades. The first board comes queen, nine, eight with two spades. So on that board, I have only a very weak flush draw and a very weak gut shot, which in PLO basically means I have nothing. The second board comes seven, six, three with two spades. So on this board, I have the nuts. My five, four makes a straight. I also have another weak flush draw, which again, I don't expect will mean much. So to review, I have seven, five, four, three with two spades, and the boards come queen, nine, eight with two spades, and seven, six, three with two spades, giving me the nut straight on the second board. 
It checks to my aggressive opponent in middle position who bets $60. I call in late position, and the small blind also calls. Now there's $300 in the pot, and the two turns come the five of spades on the queen nine eight board, and an offsuit deuce on the seven six three board. So on the first board I have a flush, which I don't expect to be good against two opponents who each have four cards, and on the other board I still have the nuts. The small blind checks to the aggressive player in middle position who bets $180. I call again, and so does the small blind. So now there's 840 in the pot, and the rivers come an offsuit queen on the queen 985 board, so queen 985 queen with three spades, and an offsuit jack on the 763 deuce board. I had little hope for my baby flush on the top board even before it paired, and now have virtually none. But I still have the nuts on the second board with 5-4 on 7-6-3 deuce jack. The small blind checks again, and now middle position bets 650. And this is where I do something I briefly think is very clever. I raise the size of the pot, which is around $2,800, thinking that because I have the nuts on the bottom board, I'm always going to win half the pot, and I can try to bluff my opponents off better flushes on the top board. So I stick the 2800 in and the small blind folds and now middle position starts tanking and after a minute I think, oh wait, this trick where you try to bluff someone off half the pot in these double board PLO bomb pots makes sense in situations where the nuts are unique. That is when you have say the ace high heart flush on one board and that's the nuts, no one else can have the ace of hearts and so no one else can have the nuts. So you really are free rolling the other board. You don't mind if your opponent calls because you're guaranteed to win half the pot. And if you can get them to fold away their winning hand on the other board, even better. In this case though, I have the nuts on the bottom board, but all it takes to have the nuts is 5-4. My opponent can also have any combination of 5-4. And if he has say 5-4 with two spades bigger than mine in his four card hand, or he has a hand like queen nine five four for a full house on the top board and a straight on the bottom, I'm going to get quartered, which means that I completely lose the top board and only win half the pot on the bottom. I hadn't realized that when I put all that money in. So this occurs to me as he's tanking and I'm almost laughing to myself like, well, Charlie, this is not going to be the most costly mistake you've ever made in poker, but it's definitely one of the dumbest. And you know, whatever, I don't know the format. So after my opponent has tanked for several minutes, he goes all in and I'm like, oh my God, it's happening. I'm getting quartered here. I can't fold at this point because I only have a couple thousand back and I'm guaranteed to win at least a quarter of the pot. So I reluctantly call and my opponent shows ace, 10, six, six with two spades. So on the top board, queen, nine, eight, five, queen with three spades, he has an ace high flush. And on the bottom board, seven, six, three, deuce, jack, he just has a set, which I fortunately beat. So after all that, I do win half the pot and I end up making a couple hundred dollars in the hand. And I'm thinking, wow, I made such a huge mistake in this hand. And then my opponent made an even bigger mistake. I risked getting quartered, but he risked just losing the entire pot if I had a hand like five, five, four, that made a boat on the top board and a straight on the bottom. Unlike me, my opponent didn't have the nuts on either board. 
and he had much more reason to suspect I had a very strong hand than I had of him. So I do think there's a lot of money to be made in these pots. But it wasn't going to be made by me because I was leaving after a week and going back to Los Angeles where we don't have double board PLO bomb pots. And so I came to really dislike them. For one thing, they take an extremely long time to play. It's not uncommon for a double board PLO bomb pot to last five minutes or more. It takes each player a while to even figure out what she has, let alone how to play it. These pots also take longer to deal and longer to sort out at the end because that's when the dealer struggles to figure out who has what and because the pot so often gets chopped. And then the next hand, where you go back to no limit hold'em, is often a misdeal because the dealer has just sat down and after the eight minute PLO hand that's just been played has gotten the idea that this is a PLO table. I also strangely didn't get the sense that a lot of the players like these double board PLO bomb pots much. There was a lot of low grade grumbling about how long they took and many players didn't participate. Anyway, the rest of the time I was, of course, playing No Limit Hold'em, which wasn't nearly as crazy as the double board PLO bomb pot I just described. In a double board PLO bomb pot with $5,000 stacks, those stacks are going to go in a decent percentage of the time, but that wasn't the case in the No Limit Hold'em hands, where the big blind was still just $5, and where most of the players, including myself, had a much better idea what was going on. It's hard to play any poker variant when you don't really know your opponents. And there were some pots this week I almost certainly played imperfectly because I didn't know everyone. For example, there's a pot in which the cutoff limps, the button, who I don't know at all, raises to $25, the small blind calls, and I have ace-queen offsuit in the big blind. This is a very clear squeeze spot, so I raise to $130. It folds to the button, who calls, and the small blind folds. So there's about 290 in the pot, and the flop comes king, nine, four, with two diamonds. I don't have a diamond with my ace-queen. I bet $115, which I think is a fine play, and the button calls. The turn is an offsuit deuce, so now the board is king, nine, four, deuce with two diamonds, and I have ace-queen with no diamonds for absolutely nothing. I think checking is fine here, but I decide to continue betting. I block many of my opponent's best top pair hands, like king-queen and perhaps ace-king. I also unblock his flush draws. That is, since I don't have a diamond, I don't prevent my opponent from having flush draws that I don't mind him having since I'm currently beating them. Also, this is a good board for my range generally, and I expect my opponent to have a lot of hands like pocket 10s, pocket 8s, or a 9 that don't like me betting twice here. So I make it 320, and he quickly calls. The river is an offsuit 7, and my opponent has about 800 behind. I'm done with this hand now and check, and my opponent bets 300. I fold. Someone else asks him what he had, and he says pocket kings for a slowly played top set, which, who knows. Anyway, I'm not too concerned about this until about a half hour later, when I see the action fold to the same player on the button, and he just limps. Later, the hand shows down, and he turns over jack-10 suited. And I'm like, whoops. Because what that suggests is that this player isn't raising nearly as often as he should from the button, which means that squeezing even with a hand as strong as ace-queen might not be a good play. 
If I'd known that about this guy, I probably would have just called preflop and then checked and folded on a board of king 9-4, which means I would have saved over $400. Here's another hand that shows how tough poker can be when you don't know your opponents. Two players limp, the hijack raises to 25. I call in the small blind with pocket sevens, and everyone, the big blind and the two limpers, also calls. So there's 125 in the pot, and we go five ways to the flop. It comes king, jack, seven, with a king and jack of spades, giving me bottom set on a wet board. It checks to the preflop raiser, and he checks back. So there's still 125 in the pot heading to the turn, which is an offsuit queen, for a board of king, jack, seven, queen, with two spades. Now I'm behind ace-10 and 10-9, which is certainly something of a concern against four opponents, but my hand is still clearly good enough to bet, so I bet $60 about half the pot. I think there's a case for betting more here. There are lots of two pairs, pair plus draws, and spade draws available that won't fold for a larger size, but I bet 60 the big blind, and the second limper call. Now there's 305 in the pot, and the river is a jack. So the board is king, jack, seven, queen, jack. The spade draw is missed, and I have a full house, sevens full of jacks. I bet $225, about three quarters of the pot. The big blind now raises to 725, and the third player folds, and it's back to me. I do beat straights, but I think most players would raise those on the turn. I also beat trip jacks, and it's possible my opponent could have a hand like jack 10 that had a pair and a straight draw on the turn. But that hand doesn't really seem strong enough to raise, given all the straights and full houses I can have. He can't have jack x of spades here either, since the jack of spades is on the board. And that leaves full houses that beat mine, specifically king jack and queen jack. It makes perfect sense that my opponent would have those hands. Those hands would call a bet on the turn because they aren't strong enough to raise. And because my opponent only defended his big blind preflop, he can have every combination of those two hands. That means my sevens full of jacks isn't nearly as strong as it might initially appear. Also, my opponent hasn't been out of line over an hour or so of playing with him, and doesn't seem like the type to be either bluffing or wildly overplaying a hand in a pot this big. So... I fold. I'm not sure what he had, but I like my reasoning, and I got to play several more hours with this guy later in the week, and what I saw didn't make me think I made the wrong decision. Outside the bomb pot hands, I did see some stereotypically crazy Texas poker. On my last day in town, I'm in a game where several players are way out of line, playing way too many hands and three betting way too loose. I've been card dead and have played extremely tight. Under the gun raises to $15. I have ace-king next to act and just call. There are four more calls and then the small blind three bets to 150. He has about $1,800. It folds to me and I back raise 4-bet. This isn't a play I make very often. I used to do things like this a lot back in 2016 or so, but I rarely make these kinds of trappy plays now. They're pretty disrespectful in that they aim to target players who are very exploitably loose and not really paying attention. Since I don't expect these players to fold much, I'd rarely have anything but 
a very strong hand when I make a move like this. And since I usually have very strong hands and don't expect my opponent to fold, I make my raise big, bumping it up from 150 to 475. Of course, with ace-king, I don't mind if everyone folds, but if the three-bitter goes all in, I'm planning to call. Instead, after it folds to him, he chooses the most annoying option and just calls the 475. So there's already about $1,000 in this pot, and the flop comes 8-4-3 with two clubs. I don't have a club. My opponent checks, and I bet 275, thinking I can fold out many unpaired hands this way, and also perhaps set up an all-in later or buy myself two chances to hit an ace or a king on the turn or river. My opponent calls. So now there's 1550 in the pot, and again I have ace-king with no club. The turn is the jack of clubs for a board of 8, 4, 3, jack with 3 clubs. This is a terrible card since my opponent might now have a flush or a set of jacks. He checks and I check back. The river is the ace of clubs, so there are 4 clubs on board. He checks again. So now I have top pair top kicker and I can beat a hand like say pocket 10s without a club, so I check back. When he shows his hand, it takes me a moment to realize what's going on. He has pocket deuces with the deuce of clubs for a flush. So he squeezes with deuces preflop and then calls off more than a quarter of his stack facing a four bet from a tight player, me. And then he sticks around on the flop, which I guess makes some sense, and backs into the worst possible flush. That's frustrating, but you always want to play poker against guys like this. So my first impression of Texas poker was that it's obviously good, as you can tell from some of those hands, but only good, not great. I was only there for a week, so I don't have a huge sample. Maybe I just showed up on a down week. I also didn't run very well and made the trip worse for myself by skimping on a rental car and staying in a motel. So take what I have to say with a grain of salt if you want to. But Texas has developed this outsized reputation as a great place to play poker. And despite seeing some loose action and seeing that it's a good place to play $5 blind games with much less rake than you'd pay in LA, I don't know if it really lived up to that reputation. So why does Texas have this reputation? Well, some of it is word of mouth, but a lot of it has to do with live streams which have shown some completely insane hands that you can watch as highlights on YouTube. Now, I'm going to say some things about these Texas live streams, and since I do some freelance commentary for Live at the Bike, which is a competing live stream here in California, I want to emphasize that none of what I'm about to say reflects badly on the card rooms that do these streams. I've enjoyed watching their highlights, and I think they're good shows. I do think it's interesting, though, to look briefly at the picture a live stream can paint of a poker community. For example, games in Dallas are sometimes streamed for TCH Live. TCH Live's most popular YouTube video in the past year features a guy named Bildo. He's playing 10-25-50. A player in middle position picks up ace-king and raises to 225 from a stack of about 5,000. Bildo is incredibly deep and re-raises to 800 on the button with 8-7 offsuit, which is bonkers. The big blind also has ace-king and is very deep with Bildo, and he calls, presumably to re-raise after the middle position player goes all-in, which the middle position player does. 
Bildo now calls, again with just 8-7 offsuit. The big blind raises to $30,000, and Bildo, still with just 8-7 offsuit, calls. If you guys didn't think there's action at TCH Dallas, one commentator says, you're wrong, the other answers. That's for sure, Bildo for president, responds the first commentator. The flop comes a ridiculous 7-7-5, giving Bildo trips. The big blind checks, and Bildo quickly goes all in for over $40,000. The big blind, who's getting a good price at this point, even though the all-in bet costs as much as a luxury car, calls, and Bildo wins a pot of almost $150,000. It's nuts, and incredibly entertaining. And as a player, you watch something like that, and it sure looks like Texas is a poker paradise. If you go there now, though, Bildo probably isn't going to be at your table. He certainly wasn't at any of mine. In late May, the Department of Justice announced that they'd arrested Arkansas resident Billy Joe Taylor for allegedly defrauding the U.S. government of over $88 million, much of it related to fraudulent billings for COVID tests. Billy Joe Taylor is apparently Bildo. There are all kinds of sites on the internet that confirm this, and I also heard that informally from at least a dozen people at TCH, I can't find foolproof confirmation myself, and if I'm incorrect in believing that Taylor and Bildo are the same person, please contact me, and I will take this down immediately, but I'm pretty sure. So now, this guy throwing around tens of thousands of dollars at the poker table makes a lot more sense. When the 8-7 offhand took place, he may have been aware that the feds were investigating him and figured he was going to lose all that money anyway. I'm not sure where I'm going with this or what it all means, I'm obviously not suggesting that anyone involved with the TCH stream except Bildo was involved in anything untoward while it was happening. And pretty much any poker game could have some sort of fraudster in it. In fact, folks on Reddit have pointed out that a few years ago, Live at the Bike hosted a player named Dennis Blyden, who we now know was a compulsive gambler who embezzled millions from a company in California and was recently sentenced to six and a half years in prison. So I guess where I am going with this, and I'm going to head in a slightly different direction now, is that the stuff you see on TV or YouTube that seems to document an everyday experience like playing poker is not fully real. It never is. Point a camera at something and you change it. Yes, unless there's some sort of Mike Postle situation happening somewhere, the games are legitimate and the money is real. But many aspects of these streamed games differ from games that aren't streamed. I'm sure that's true everywhere, and I've seen that at Live the Bike and elsewhere. For example, some players you see on stream don't play off-stream all that frequently, and others play quite differently off-stream than they play on-stream. In many players' minds, there's a voice telling them to play more entertainingly, more wildly. I hear this voice and do my best to ignore it. And of course, there are many players in casinos who don't play on live-stream games, perhaps because the stakes they play are too small, or because the streams want to maintain a rec-friendly environment, but also sometimes because these players just don't want to. The one thing most players in stream games have in common is that they want to be on camera, and that alone makes live streams quite different from regular games. Or to frame it more positively, playing on stream requires a kind of bravery and a willingness to be criticized. So players on streams tend to be more brave or perhaps more reckless than players in regular games. I've also heard a couple guys say that they're more self-conscious on stream than they normally are and therefore play tighter, but the regular players, the ones coming back to these streams week after week, don't seem to think this way. Even 
basic elements of the experience of playing poker are different on stream. At Live of the Bike, the cards used on stream are different than the cards used on the casino floor. The cards used on stream are bigger so that they can be read by RFID software. Since they're bigger, the dealer can't put them in a shuffler. There are also bright lights shining on the table and you aren't allowed to use your phone. Once a stream ends, if the players want the game to continue, the cards are quickly switched out and the lights are turned off and the players take their phones out. So none of this is to take anything away from stream games. I'm just trying to contextualize them. I love being part of Live at the Bike and I feel like I'm contributing to LA poker culture when I commentate. But this Texas experience did get me thinking about how these streams aren't purely documents of an ecosystem or a community. Of course, that's partially what they are. These games really do take place in the card rooms they advertise, and they're real poker games for real money. But they're also entertainment products. What I saw in Texas was different from what happens on stream. Just as poker in California is different on stream than off it. It wasn't bad, just different. Thanks for listening to Third Man Walking. You can find me on Twitter at Third Walking or via email at thirdmanwalkingpodcast at gmail.com.